That was wonderful. Let's open our Bibles to Psalm 78. If you have a visitor slip or a prayer slip, we'd love to get those from you. And we will pray for you this week. I join Alex in celebrating the decision on Friday. For us, Roe versus Wade is not a political issue. It's a life issue. We're Christians and uh, we serve a God who uh, weaved us in our mother's womb and formed us. And so what an opportunity we'll have in the coming days. I am thankful for the growth of uh, crisis pregnancy centers uh, around America. Uh, doubling the abortion clinics um, in number and an opportunity for us to stand in the gap even more so in the coming days. Every week we promote adoption and foster care in Louisiana and pray for that need and I am thankful for the the decision of this week. There's a lot of emotion and hysteria uh, but little conversation on the legal arguments of Roe and if you'll read them um, you'll see that there's no constitutional provision for abortion and that this is placed back where it should have been at the very beginning before the elected representatives of the people. I'm thankful for Friday, and I pray that you would celebrate um, as we see hopefully change in our country. We've gathered here today to taste and to see that the Lord is good, and we uh, are going to conclude this uh, series on the family by looking at the role of parenting. Since Adam and Eve, parents have been charged with caring for their children. And the stakes couldn't be higher regarding the training of the little ones under your care. The Lord has charged believers with more than providing food and clothing, medical care, and teaching life skills. Uh, Believing parents are called to nurture, instruct, correct, and shepherd their children in the gospel, and I would argue that this is the hardest assignment in the world. You don't get a manual at the hospital with all the ins and outs, but we do have a book that we will consult uh, to um, give us wisdom, and to there we will go today. Why is this, why, why would I say that this is one of the most difficult assignments in the world? Actually, it's more definitive than that. Why is this the hardest assignment in the world? And I think three reasons come to my mind. The first would be the impact of sin. That we have sin natures. Parents are sinners. Hopefully redeemed by the grace of God, but nevertheless, uh, dealing with the vestiges of sin and uh, the issues of the heart. What a great prayer to, to pray back this morning. Psalm 51, uh, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And not just with parents, but with children. Children have a sin nature. And so the impact of sin makes this very difficult. Um, but nevertheless, we should have hope in the gospel as God has charged us with this great responsibility. I think secondly is the influence of culture the influence of this world um, and where you're wanting to sow good seed into the lives of your children only to be gobbled up in an afternoon or a moment's time through um, uh, the influence that comes in this world. And so we have to be vigilant and circumspect with regard to uh, our children's exposure. But keeping them in the cocoon isn't the answer either. We know how that could go wrong for sure. Uh, a child shielded and, and protected, which that needs to be a part of the parenting process, but so much so that they leave their parents' uh, supervision only to go the opposite way and to live for the world and their flesh 
and the evil one, which leads us thirdly to the intrusion of the evil one, the impact of sin, the influence of culture, and the intrusion of the evil one. I think this captures what John wrote in 1 John 2, that we're not to love the world. As believers, we're not to love the world, and it's in reference to the world's system, ideas, uh, philosophies, ideologies. We're not to love the world or the things in the world that would capture our heart and draw us away from pure devotion to to the living God. If anyone loves the world, John says, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away in its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So parenthood for the believer in Jesus Christ is about cultivating a love for the Father and a desire to do His will in this world that's hostile to His reign. And this really should be the the drive and the commitment of a a, a local church is that we are pursuing what it means to love God and not the world because whoever does his will abides with him forever. Now, the skeptics will mock a Christian upbringing. You've heard it, no doubt. Things like, you're just following the religion your parents crammed down your throat. Once you escape their puritanical prison, you'll discover what the world's really like and you can live for yourself and see for yourself. However, there's no shame in passing on biblical truth. In fact, that's the very responsibility of every parent, to sow words of truth into your child's life. This is exactly what God commands parents and the church to do. So whether you're married or single, we all have a commitment to be a part of younger generations embracing the gospel and following the Lord. And I would have you look at a couple passages with me. Um, centrally, and then we'll look at a number of others in Proverbs. But I want to look at Psalm 78. It's a psalm of Asaph. And it's a, a miscal, probably a musical or liturgical term. It, it really is a his, history lesson of Israel. So history has its place in passing on the gospel, looking back at God's past deeds and rejoicing in them. And so Asaph, who was in charge of the choir and music under King David, gives a miscal, um, a teaching for worship. And he says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching, and incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. This was used as an opening to Jesus' parable teaching in the Gospels. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things which have we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. So we're believers in Jesus Christ today because somebody told us, hey, let me tell you about a savior that changed my life. And I, I, I read about him in this book and, and I want you to know him too because I've discovered he's the way, the truth, and the life. That's, that's how we come to know the Lord. One generation, one Christian telling someone else about the Lord and they themselves believing on him. And he says in verse four, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation. So within this body, we should have a commitment to want to tell coming generations of the gospel that has redeemed us and is our hope. It says in verse 4, the glorious deeds of the Lord. 
for us that would be centered in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Just the power of reading his parables, to read of his miracles, to go on uh, to that tomb three days after he was crucified and hear multiple accounts. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Hallelujah. And that he's a living Savior who will be there to the end. He says, um, he established a testimony in Jacob in verse 5 and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children. So that is the command of every Christian home. That is the command of every child in this church that you would take the teaching of God's word and value it. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm at that stage, Pastor, just to be honest, I'm just looking forward to 12 o'clock getting here. Because you usually wrap it up about 20 till, quarter till, and then when we get done with everything, it's about high noon. And then I can go visit with my friends, and I can go do what I want in the afternoon. I understand that. I remember as a little boy counting the cracks in the ceiling of the church. I understand that very well. But I want to hold up for you that you have a responsibility to children as well. God has given you an incredible opportunity to hear the Bible taught in clear terms for you to hear and to believe and to follow the Lord. It's our duty to do that. It's our joy to do that. We want you to see that the joy of the Lord is indeed the strength of our life. And when it comes to who you're gonna follow and how you're gonna live, there's no one better than Jesus Christ. Call out to him when you're young. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Follow him now. This worship service is for you as much as anyone else in the church that we would follow the Lord. Verse six, and the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. What a timely scripture for this week. And arise and tell them to their children and so it goes on and on and on. So we have a responsibility to pass that on. May we be faithful to it. It's part of parenting. It's part of being in the body of Christ. It's our stewardship of the gospel. Now, notice with me second. Um, I want to ask you to turn with me to Proverbs 22, verse 6. When we come to Proverbs, let me just say right up front that these are not universal promises. Uh, these are general truisms. That's important because you come to Proverbs 22, 6, and you, you lock onto that and you say, well, you know, I uh, train up a child in the way you should go. And even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Well, we know examples of people who've grown up in Christian homes, grown up in the church, and at a particular age, they're gone. That's how they say to Mississippi, gone. They're out the door doing 94. They don't want to have anything else to do with the church or whatever. And it's amazing. You could see children growing up in the same home. And some of the children love the Lord with all their heart. And some don't. So there's a mystery there, isn't there? Good. We need to know that mystery because salvation always belongs to the Lord, not your parenting. That doesn't mean we're to be slipshod with it. 
I'm just saying that if anybody's going to be saved, it's by the grace of God and the Spirit of God calling them to himself. We're just called to set the table. So here, Solomon, who wrote most of the Proverbs, says, train up a child in the way he should go. That's generally true. No, that's the, that's the call. The, the truism is, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. So I would be willing to wager, if that's okay, <laughs> that, um, you know, for all those who say, I don't go to church anymore because my parents crammed it down my throat and I'm done, that we could, we could survey those in this assembly now who say, I'm, I'm here today precisely because my parents nurtured me and trained me in the way of, lo- of the Lord. And I feel funny when I'm not in the Lord's house on the Lord's day serving and being with God's people. That's how it should be. That's a a portrait of Psalm 78. So what does this mean, this training? Ray Ortland, in his fine commentary on Proverbs, uh, noted that the word translated train, train up means dedicate. Dedicate your children to the Lord. Dedicate your children to Christ. Do not raise your child for the American dream. Warn your child against the American dream that the goal in life is to earn money and to have lots of play toys. That's not the goal in life. The the goal in life is to know God and serve God and worship God and love God and to live for His glory. The Hebrew word translated train up is related to an Arabic verb which was used to describe rubbing the palate of a newborn baby and with a date and crushed grape mixture, rubbing the palate of this child to taste and to motivate the child to take it in. And the best way for you to influence your child in that way is for you to be dedicated to Jesus Christ yourself. You want to train them? Live what you say. Often we hear parents who don't want to own up say, live as I say, not as I do. That's horrible counsel. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so I want to hold up from Proverbs here, how do I train my child? I thought of nine ways that won't take nine days. But this morning, I'm hoping to give you a list. It's on the insert. And maybe we can get some wisdom today for this difficult assignment, I would just say, um, you know, nothing is more humbling than than parenthood. It's just a humbler all the time. You see your sin, you see your sin lived out in your children, you're aware of many ways that you fall short, and what is our hope? Our hope is in the gospel, that God has given us this call, and maybe I'm speaking to a weary parent tonight, or this morning, rather, a weary parent this morning, that God would refresh you with his promises. And I, I'm noticing something else too, because our oldest is 30, and our youngest is 14, and so we're still in the game. But once they get 30, it ain't over, is it? It's not over. We're still parents. The role's changed. And I pray that we would be up to the calling, that we would be faithful to pass on our faith, that um, they would embrace the Lord. So what do we need to do with this training? Now, I want to just bring in to bear the wisdom of Proverbs for the next few moments. And I want to note first, we're, 
we're to train them and teach them to fear the Lord. We want them to learn to fear the Lord. That's a, that is a, a major thrust of Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Elsewhere it says in chapter 9, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And remember, the Hebrew idea of wisdom is not philosophical ivory tower, um, philosophical systems. Uh, wisdom in the Hebrew mind was skill in life. Being successful in life as God defines success. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. No one is truly wise who rejects or dismisses the gospel. So let's begin with the fear of the Lord there, that we are sinners and that God is holy and we need a bridge. We need a mediator before, between sin, our sinful self and a holy God. And Jesus Christ is that mediator. So we begin to fear the Lord when we understand our sin. God gave 10 commandments. How have we done in keeping them? No, no one can be justified by keeping the Ten Commandments. And so it brings us to the point, well, how can I be reconciled with God? If God created me and therefore I'm owned, how can I be made right with Him? And, and that brings to the forefront what Jesus accomplished through His life, death, and resurrection. But teaching them to fear the Lord, learning to fear the Lord, has with it the idea of following him in obedience and having respect and honor for him. Children today um, are no longer taught to fear God. And it shows at every level of society. Um, we need to be reminded that as we read the Bible, sin's a capital offense. And the fear of the Lord's displeasure needs to be communicate. How do we communicate that? By the decisions we make and the commitments of our lives. Children, we're going to live in this way because we want to honor the Lord. We want to walk in the fear of God, which is right and good, and to show our respect to Him. John MacArthur wrote, your children need to grow up with an awareness that they, when they do wrong, it doesn't just irritate mommy. It doesn't just antagonize daddy. It doesn't just cause disorder in the family. But when they disobey, they set themselves against a holy God who deals out consequences for those who violate his righteous principles. So every moment of discipline is a reminder that this is exactly why you need a savior. This is exactly why you need a savior. This is why we point you to Jesus. The fear of the Lord is, um, is not a popular subject today. In fact, Albert Moeller wrote in his um, briefing this week, in one of the briefs, uh, the U.S. hits a new low. New low. Gallup reports number, uh, indicate a num number of Americans who believe in God has dropped to the lowest number ever. I, I don't wring my hands when I read stuff like that. You know, I, I don't. Those aren't statistics. Oh, gee, what are we going to do? Uh, God's on the throne, and I know that. All I'm wanting to do is hold up that we are living in, in an increasingly hostile culture to the things of God and the fear of God. And you see it everywhere. You see rebellion to new heights across the board. 
And so where do they learn reverence? They learn it in your living room when you open the Bible and you call upon the name of the Lord together. They learn reverence when they come into church and um, they see uh, men and women of this body singing and praying and, and their lives matching their, their testimony. They're not seeing a duplicity there. Greg Morse wrote um, an insightful article this week on Desiring God called The Casual Church, What Happened to Christian Reverence? And he said... With many today, it appears worship of the Almighty is slight and carefree. The assumption seems to be that God is content, thankful even, that we have set aside our precious time on our Sunday to give Him some of our attention. That's how people come into church all the time. God ought to be happy I'm here. Lord knows I'm giving Him an hour and a half. I remember one of our friends who has some, have, has some golfing buddies who... Um, aren't acquainted with the things of God. You know, so they ask him, you know, what, how long do you spend at church? Well, we, we get there early, about quarter to nine, and we're there all the way through noon. Three, over three hours on Sunday. Wow, you guys are, you're fanatics. That's not even a tithe of our time. So this idea of he ought to be happy I'm in the building needs to die a, a needful death today. What happened to reverence, Morris goes on to say? When did it become an endangered species? Has God not the right to ask many professing Christians today as he did in Malachi's day? A son honors his father and a, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor, says the Lord? If I'm a master, where is my fear? Morris goes on to say that he's not speaking of the bizarre outliers given to almost unbelievable forms of irreverence like you know the pastors um, spraying the congregation with a squirt gun or knocking a, a beach ball around as the prelude to the worship service and a host of other bizarre and irreverent things he's just talking about the average Christian not taking seriously who the Lord is where is the cry of Isaiah woe is me I'm undone for I'm a man of unclean lips where is the cry of Job where he said, now my eyes see you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes? Where's the cry of Peter in Luke 5 where he says to Jesus, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And how about the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos when I saw him, when John saw the living resurrected Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. The fear of the Lord teaching them that they may learn of the fear of the Lord. Secondly, be careful to guard your heart. How do you train them? Teach them to guard their heart. It says in Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart with all vigilance, or, uh, vigilance, I'm sorry, with all vigilance and from it, for from it flow the springs of life. Learn to guard your heart from things that are evil, things that are destructive, don't give your heart to things that violate God's word that you know are a dishonor to God. How will they know that? They need to be taught that. They need to be taught the Ten Commandments. They need to be taught the, the principles of God's word. Don't assume that they're picking that up in Sunday school. That needs to be happening in church. And by the way, another commercial for next Sunday's message called The Family Altar, where we're gonna hit this head on. What is the best way you and I as believers and as a church to impact life in this nation? I believe it's in your living room, in that 
place where you meet together as a family and you speak of the things of God and you call on the Lord and you plant seeds in their heart. Guard your heart with all vigilance. Thirdly, teach your children obedience. When children don't obey, it's painful. Just think of the last time you were in public and the father or the mother had no control on the situation. It hurts, doesn't it? Because you're thinking, well, there's six now, in 10 years they're going to be 16. That's going to be a lot of trouble for everybody. And we see that in epic proportions in American life. You see it on these YouTube clips and internet clips where, you know, somebody doesn't like the way their fries were cooked at McDonald's and they tear the whole restaurant apart. I mean, you see it every week in some form, Golden Corral, McDonald's, some public place, it's happening all the time. There's no sense of order, no sense of respect. Teach your children to obey. Look at Proverbs 4, 1 through 4. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction. That you, you could just see Solomon speaking these, two, these truths to his son, getting in his face and saying, hear, O sons, a father's instruction and be attentive that you may gain insight. It's important that you learn to respond to verbal instruction. It's important that you learn to obey. In Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. You know when the Lord's disciplining you? You should. When there's conviction of sin, or whether it's pride or you were hasty in a decision, you're learning, you need to, you need to, you need to consult with me before you start making the plans of your life. Or maybe some dread mistake or sin that you've entered into and you're having to feel the repercussions of that. They must learn that disobedience is costly. That's why Proverbs would say, and this is so unpopular today, uh, Proverbs 23, 13 through 14, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he won't die. If you, if you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So let me just go ahead and say what everybody's thinking. There's a distinction between abuse and discipline, which comes in two forms, verbal discipline, instruction is given that is clear and understood, and when defiance enters in, uh, there is corporal di uh, discipline. Abuse, that's unfair and unexpected. It's degrading and demoralizing. It's harsh and brutal without limits. It's torturous. It leaves scars. It results from hatred and resentment. And, um, but discipline, it's fair and expected. It upholds dignity. It's balanced within limits. It's painful, but it doesn't leave scars. It's prompted by love and concern. That's the difference. That's what Solomon's talking about. And so there's a distinction between crushing and shaming the will and shaping the will, which is what Solomon's talking about. So the goal of discipline, what is the goal of, dis what is the goal of parenthood? The goal of parenthood is salvation. But we can't pull that off ourselves. 
It's not like we can flick water on them, say, you're saved, you're saved, you're redeemed. That's not the way that works. We're to set the table, we're to train them for the purpose that they may know uh, salvation. We're speaking to them of God's goodness and mercy to us in Christ Jesus. They're seeing God's grace in our life. And again, with every moment of discipline, it's a reminder, this is why you need a savior. Notice with me fourthly, or D, bad company corrupts good morals. I actually took that from 1 Corinthians 15, which is what Paul said. And here in, in Proverbs 1, 11 through 18, he warns his son, if sinners entice you, verse 10 says, don't go with them. How many lives have been destroyed by, you know, it was just a few beers. It was just going out with my friends and, and you're involved in all sorts of mischief and illegal things. Bad company corrupts good morals. Who you hang around, that's going to influence you. This is coming right from Proverbs. Who you give your heart to, that's how you're going to live. Choose well. Learn self-control, E. Learn self-control all through Proverbs, learning to say no. In chapter two, it's, it's with regard to sexual temptations as well as chapters five through seven, learning to say no, coming to terms with the desires of your heart, learning self-control. We have a little devotional book in our home and it has a story called Timmy's Tummy. And it's about this little kid, eight years old, named Timmy, and he was looking forward to the church picnic, and he was especially looking forward to playing in the softball game after the, the picnic. And so um, the food began to arrive, and Timmy's looking at the, at the table, and he's talked to one of his friends, and his friends informed Timmy, hey, mom uh, made the cream sticks for the picnic. And Timmy sees the plate of cream sticks on that table, and he gets one. And it tastes so good that he eats another and another and another. That little boy down seven cream sticks. And so he's looking a little bit green at that moment. And now it's time for the softball game. Well, Timmy's throwing up over in the dugout. And his dad was able to come alongside of him and say, Tim, we need to learn self-control. Just because you like it doesn't mean you eat seven cream sticks. And that applies across the board to everything in life. Learn self-control. Don't live for the moment where you satisfy your... Learn contentment. Next, F, honor and enjoy marriage. Chapter 5, 18 through 20, I won't read the whole passage in mixed company, but let me just say this. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Honor marriage. There's no guilt in marriage. There's no shame in marriage. God intended marriage to be a place of enjoyment, of intimacy, and you're to save yourself for that. Oh, that's so ancient. No, that's biblical. That's what the Bible says over and over again. Next, go to the ant not the sluggard. I love how Proverbs brings out this illustration of an ant because if you hate ants as much as I do, you'll wonder, what, why did God create those things? So you could read about them in Proverbs 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, old sluggard. 
consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Go to the ant. Later in Proverbs, we see this entire composite of the sluggard who's known for his moral failures, whose soul craves, but they get nothing. They love sleep, by the way. How long will you lie down, O sluggard? sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, that's their motto. They take no initiative. They are habitually late in completing their tasks. The sluggard does not plow after autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. Which reminds me of Andy Holmes' little book for children in which he has a story called The Ant and the Grasshopper. There once was a grasshopper, let's call him Ed. Ed had a friend that we'll call Fred. Fred was an ant who worked all day. Ed, on the other hand, only played. Fred stacked leaves all through the spring. Ed did not do anything. Well, I'll admit, that's not all true. These are the things Ed chose to do, swing on flowers and chat with bugs and play cards with a slug named Doug, build mud castles, watch cartoons, stay in bed till half past noon. Ed just did what he thought was fun. Fred toiled until the day was done. In the summer, Fred worked hard building homes in people's yards. And when the owner crushed his town, he built a new one, one shrub down. And talk about good exercise. Fred hauled things three times his size. Fred liked work and did it well, then rested when the evening fell. Ed Ed didn't like work at all. Not in the summer, in the spring, or the fall. Fred always warned, one day you'll see that you've acted foolishly. But Ed just laughed, you're crazy, Fred, to work when you could play instead? Then winter came, and lots of snow And poor Ed had no place to go, no wood to burn, no food to eat, no boots to warm his freezing feet. His belly growled, his body ached, and soon poor Ed began to shake. I've got to find my good friend Fred. He'll keep warm, he'll keep me warm and dry and fed. But when he knocked on Fred's front door, he heard what he ignored before. I hate to say it, I told you so. While you stand there in the snow. But what I said has now come true, and I cannot take care of you. And so it is for the sluggard. They would gladly latch on and let other people do the work for them. Teach them to work and not be a burden to others. I think of Proverbs 10.26, like vinegar did the teeth. And smoke to the eyes. You remember picking up the barbecue pit and the the, the smoke bellowing out and hitting you like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes is the lazy one to those who sent him. Always an excuse. There's a lion in the street outside. No, there isn't. You're just lazy. And it's always an excuse on why the work can't be done. And it takes its toll. How important it is to teach them to work. Go to the ant, not the sluggard. Honor the Lord with your money would be H. Randy Alcorn noted that 15% of everything Christ said relates to this topic. 
more than his teaching on heaven and hell combined. The reason I believe Jesus spent so much time on, on the subject of possessions is because there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we handle and regard money. We're not to be money lovers. In fact, we're to honor the Lord with our, with our wealth, the first fruits of what God has given to us. So if we could condense what does money management look like, it would be like this. First, give it. Be generous. Save it because you're going to need it. And then live on a margin from what you've given and what you've saved. Proverbs 11.25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters will himself be watered. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty only comes to poverty. To live within a margin, not to be a money lover. And then finally, teach them to love their neighbor and even their enemies. Love your neighbor and your enemy. The greatest commandment is to love God. Second, like unto it is to love your neighbor as yourself. In Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it, to do good to others. Don't rejoice when your enemy falls, Proverbs 24.17, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. What does that cause you to do? (laughs) Really look at the condition of your heart and not rejoice when your enemy fails or falls. Parents, we must model what we teach, which is probably the most convicting thing about parenting. We're to reflect the grace and wisdom of our Savior. We're not just dispensers of information. We are to follow the marks of his wounded feet. The goal of parenting for the believer is the salvation of our children, which makes us really needy because we can't pull it off on our own. We can set the table Our children's salvation will not come because of our parenting. Their salvation will always be through the drawing of the power of God. You know, the amazing thing about Solomon, he had so many incredible things to say. They're inspired truths. They take up an entire book of the Bible. Solomon was known for his wisdom. The content we've just looked at is flawless. It's inspired. It's God's word to us. But what's really sad is that Solomon didn't model what he taught. And he was known for his glory and his wealth and his wisdom, but unfortunately he was known for his women and his immorality. It's interesting that Jesus said in his ministry, someone greater than Solomon's here. Someone greater than Solomon's here. And may we look to Christ who is our wisdom in our salvation, and our hope, and remember God's call to us as families and as a church to make the glories of the Lord known to the next generation. I pray those nine points would be an encouragement to you. Take them home, think about them, and ask God to make you the best parent and the best witness that you can be. It's now time to come to the Lord's table. What a special time this is to proclaim the death of the Lord. I want to ask the deacons to come forward at this time. And Jared's going to guide us in this time of reflection and preparation as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup.